We'll be uh, focusing our time this morning on Romans chapter 10. So as you are turning to that, I also want to give you an update. Uh, Last week was uh, our collection day for the Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes. Uh, We had uh, set uh, a goal of, I believe, uh, 3,000. And uh, as of yesterday, we had collected 3,161 boxes total. So... So thank you all for participating. Uh, it, we'll probably have a, a break. You won't hear much about it, but believe it or not, it'll come soon enough. Uh, as we get into the next year, uh, then we'll look forward to doing that together once again. But thank you for uh, serving the ministry in this way and uh, continue to pray about the gospel opportunities that will then be made available uh, after the boxes are then processed and then shipped. Uh, and they go literally all, all over the world, uh, just pray for the opportunity then really to do what is being stated in Romans chapter 10. We're going to back up to verse 9 and read through the end of the chapter. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed, and How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. When I use the word responsibility, that probably brings to mind another word. And that would be the word expectations. In other words, if you want to hold me responsible for some kind of action, then there needs to be some indication I was expected to fulfill those obligations. It's the essence of responsibility. If somebody in your workplace comes to you and says, why didn't you do A, B, and C, and you 
pull out your job description and say, because A, B, and C is not on my job description. And perhaps it will be a challenge to hold you responsible. Then again, if you are met by your boss and that boss points out, why didn't you do A, B, and C? And he pulls out your job description and says, see, it's right here, A, B, and C. Now you've got a problem, right? Because you are responsible for the expectations that were communicated to you. Now this has bearing on Romans chapter 10. We've already spent considerable time in Romans 9 looking at two sides of what can be a very difficult coin. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty. On the one hand, Romans 9, making it clear God is sovereign, that He has mercy on whomever He'll have mercy. He, he loved Jacob. He hated Esau. We worked our way through some very tricky and deep and profound theology. But the natural question then, at the end of all of that, the natural question, and maybe even accusation, especially to a guy like me with the particular theological positions I have communicated, the natural question is to ask, so why is anybody then responsible? Why, isn't, isn't it unjust for God to hold me accountable if God's just up there in heaven doing whatever God wants to do? If he's choosing some and passing over others, if, if he has mercy on whomever he wills and compassion on whomever he wills, and if as the example he gives of, of Pharaoh, if he hardens some hearts and not others, why, why is it that anybody is held responsible? And in other words, with just chapter 9, we may wonder, what is the expectation for us? Why is there any expectation? Doesn't this mean it's all just God's fault? Well, no. Here's why. Some of you are not going to like this, all right? Okay? We've warned you about this before. If you're new this morning and this is your first time hearing it, it depends on what kind of philosophical tendencies you may have. Romans chapter 10 then just gives us the other side of the coin. Is God sovereign over all things, beginning, middle, and end? Yes. Does that mean that God is at fault for my sin and unbelief? No. Pastor, why not? Because Romans 10 says he's not. Romans 10 is the other side. Romans 10 offers us then a description of human responsibility. And here is something critical about these two chapters. These two chapters that, again, quite frankly, are perhaps some of the more difficult concepts in all of the Bible Some would tell me I was even foolish to try and attempt to do this on a Sunday morning, especially for what amounts to like three months' worth of sermons, all right? But that's the benefit of having the smartest congregation in town, all right? So, buttering you up here, right? Okay, all right. The thing to keep in mind about Romans 9 and 10, no matter their difficulty and their challenge and the way it might make the brain spin like a hamster on a wheel, Paul does not care at all to try and reconcile these two ideas. 
He makes no effort philosophically to try and help you connect all the dots, to figure out all of the in-between between this side of the coin, God's sovereignty, and this side of the coin, human responsibility. Instead, the expectation is just laid upon us to trust and obey what the Word says. So this has been our focus, looking then at the human side of the coin, which, to be clear, is the one we live in, right? This is our view of the gospel. We got a glimpse behind the curtain. We got a bit of a glimpse from the heavenly perspective. It's an overwhelming glimpse. Uh, It's dazzling. It's like too much light for the eyes, right? It leaves you blinking and uncertain about all these things. But from, from the other side, yes, this is the world we live in. So what is our responsibility? What are the expectations placed upon us? Well, I think there are four. We've looked at two. We dabbled in a third. And we'll finish with three and four then this morning. So the first two, number one... We are responsible to believe the gospel. Verses 30 through 33, it's the clear expectation. Paul distinguishes the response of Gentiles, those who weren't even looking for God's righteousness, attained it because they believed by faith. The Jews, though they had all the Old Testament and all the privilege in the world, they refused to believe the gospel and instead wanted to believe their own way, to develop their own means by, by keeping the law, the law as they thought it should be kept, in order to make them right with God. Then we looked at the second one, and that is we are responsible to trust the gospel. Mere belief is not sufficient. What I mean by mere belief is simple intellectual assent to certain truths. And I say it that way because the demons believe the basic facts about the gospel. James chapter 2 makes that clear. Satan believes Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. Satan is all too aware that every human being that places their faith in Christ has their sins forgiven and eternity guaranteed. He understands those things. So mere intellectual assent is not the issue. The issue is, does one place his or her confidence in the gospel? Is he or she trusting Christ is sufficient to save? And that was the, then the, those verses we looked at in chapter 10 and verses, say, 1 through 5. That, that it, 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 it amounts to saying more than just, I believe these things, but yes, I recognize my own righteousness is insufficient to save. Christ has done it all for me. Then we got to number 3 last week, and that was, we are responsible to confess the gospel. This brings belief and trust to its public head, meaning I am expected then to identify with the gospel, to publicly declare, all right? To confess is to come under it, or to confess is to say this is absolutely the foundational elements of what I believe. To confess the gospel is to own the gospel. So, so Paul then lays this out for us, I think in an interesting way. In verse 5, we noted how, you know, if, if you want to be righteous by keeping the law, fine. The man who does these things shall live by them. Verse 5, what does he mean by that? You want to be righteous by keeping the law? All right. Give it your best shot. But you have to keep every little bit of it. All the time. Every day. And not starting today, for the entirety of your life, before now, 
and now, and after now, for all of your life. That's what he means when he says you shall live by them. Not, you get to pick and choose the big boys out of the top ten list, right? Like you get to try and, I'll get there if I don't kill anybody, okay? Right, if I don't steal, at least not too much, right? If I, if I, if I tell the truth almost all the time. This is how we reconcile these things and we assume if I do all that and help some people along the way, all right. No, no, that's, that's not what God says. You are welcome to try and make yourself righteous. Just be prepared to keep every last little bit of the law all the time, always. And you better look back on your life. If there was even one little hiccup, then the Bible says you're a lawbreaker and you should be treated like a criminal. But the good news is, Paul goes on then to say, that's not necessary. Verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, he's saying, you don't have to go through some kind of monumental effort here. You you, you don't have to go on some kind of arduous journey. You know, it's not like Frodo going to Mordor. I know, some of you get it. Some of you are like, what? All right, okay, I understand. Nerd alert. All right, okay, I get it. But it's, it's not like you've got to go through this profound effort. It's not like you've got to find your way up to heaven as if to drag salvation down from it. And it's not like you've got to go down into the depths of hell itself as if to drag salvation up from it. It's not how it works. You don't have to do it this way. Here, here's the irony that I think he's setting up in this text. You, you, you want to set up a system where you've got to work and work and work. Where, where you've got to follow the five pillars or the steps to enlightenment or you've got to engage in these works as prescribed in the Old Testament, whatever other religion that's out there. You, you engage in this work and this effort and this work and this effort, this arduous journey, this kind of you know, personalized self-help. If I pull myself up, I can save myself. And, and if, if I work hard enough, then I'll earn God's righteousness. And all the while, God is saying, it's not that hard. It's really not that complicated. The Word is already right there beside you. The solution's already right there. It's near you. And when he says it's in your heart and mind, he's saying it's been preached. It's been declared to you. So there it is. It's right there. Trust in Christ. And so then that leads him then to that next part, rather well-known verses. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Now, don't be put off by that phrase. Paul often gives the gospel in shorthand. Sometimes he may just refer to the crucifixion of Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Sometimes he may just refer to the resurrection of Christ. But rest assured, if he ever refers to one or the other, it is shorthand for the whole. So when he says, believe that Christ was raised from the dead, that doesn't mean you don't have to believe in the crucifixion. (laughs) It's all a package deal. To believe Christ was raised from the dead is to believe that he then died bearing God's wrath against your sin. So, this is all contained. And what does he mean here? Look, you you don't have, again, you don't have to go through this effort, this struggle to try and make yourself right with God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess. 
Christ crucified, resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. Again, the word confess means submit to it, own it, declare it. He's talking about that which is genuine. By the way, this is a big deal in a Roman culture where death could come for confessing anyone else to be Lord but Caesar. So Paul's words here are not, un, you know, these, it's not coincidence that he puts it exactly this way. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. He's being very clear to confess something in first century Rome, to confess something other than allegiance to Caesar. It's a big deal. So again, the language here is intended to say, responsibility placed upon the human is to believe, trust, and then confess this gospel. Now, I mentioned something last week, so let's play with it a little bit today, all right? I I, I would encourage you to think carefully about this text and not misunderstand it. What I mean by that is, I'm not a big fan of the language invite Jesus into your heart and pray this prayer after me, okay? All right? Now, some of you are really worried, aren't you? You're like, oh my goodness, what's he about to do now? This guy does crazy stuff. It's like the longer he's here, he says all these things, and we don't know what to do with it. What's he going to do now? All right. First of all, and I'm going to lose some of you after I make this statement, okay? I understand how this works as a public speaker, okay? I understand what I'm about to say. I'm going to lose some of you. You're going to go to your concordance. Some of you are going to pretend like you're looking at a Bible app, but you're going to Google what I'm about to say, okay? All right? I understand. I know how this works. See everything from the pulpit, okay? It never says in the Bible to invite Jesus into your heart. Never says that. No one's ever told to do that. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that. I'm not saying you shouldn't want Jesus to come into your life, so to speak, okay? I'm just saying we want to be careful because here's what happens. One, I think that drives an emotionalism, uh, kind of an experiential kind of idea. I invite Jesus in, into my heart. This is kind of how we talk to kids. And so, how do I invite Jesus into my heart? Uh, well, I, I, I speak the words of the prayer that I'm told to speak. Now, I think this is problematic because, one, neither of those things are ever said. Here's another interesting tidbit. Not only does the Bible never say to invite Jesus into my heart, okay? We never have one example of somebody in the Bible praying to receive Christ. I may have lost a lot of you now, right? Are you serious? Is he serious? Right? And maybe that's conversation over lunch, all right? And some of you are just of a mindset where you're going to say, I'm going to prove that guy wrong. He says crazy things all the time. This can't possibly be the case. Okay, I want you to read the entirety of the New Testament, all right? That's what you're going to do over Thanksgiving holiday. After you get all that pie and turkey and you get the nap out, all right? Go to the New Testament and you can see, is this indeed the case? Now, here's why this is a problem. Because I think it encourages something less than a genuine response of faith to the gospel. That's my concern. That's my concern. I've led people in a prayer. So I'm not against that. 
What I am against is this idea that if somebody just rotely repeats some words after me, that means, all right, they're part of the kingdom. Maybe, maybe not. What is imperative is that we confess the gospel, the means by which we give outward evidence of the saving work of the gospel is confession of faith. Now, can that be in the form of a prayer? God, I admit to you I'm a sinner. I trust Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. God, I want you to save me based on what Christ has done for me. Yes, yes, you can do it that way. Indeed, how else are you going to confess Christ to the Lord but in what we may call prayer? What I'm, what I'm discouraging again is what, what I would then call like an easy believism, all right? This, this, this simplistic, all right, just repeat this after me. I, I think I told you one time, I, I even heard a message there was an evangelistic message, and there was never a reference to the crucifixion or the resurrection. Instead, the invitation was this. Everybody who wants to say yes to Jesus, raise your hand. And like a hundred people raised their hand. And then, then there was a promotion from this church all over their social media. A hundred people got saved yesterday. Uh. Hmm. Again, it's not to discourage, by the way, people. I do want you to say yes to Jesus, okay? All right? There's just a little bit more before that. It's imperative we get the gospel right. Because people responding in faith, in a type of faith, to the wrong gospel doesn't save them. So the responsibility is significant here, right? And we want to make sure that we get this right. And so that's what Paul is encouraging us. This is how he's encouraging us to see the manner in which people are to confess the gospel. Yes, we believe with the heart, but what does he mean by heart? With the entirety of the person. The, the, the heart was the center of the human will, emotion, intellect. All of it for, the, for, for Paul's day was viewed as the heart was like the control center. So his way of saying believe in the heart is a way of saying genuine, full-bodied, so to speak, belief in the gospel. And then notice how he goes on to say, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Then he wants to make clear this is not a, a, a racial, ethnic thing. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to who? To all who call upon him. And then he adds this. Again, these are a couple of these are quotes from the Old Testament. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now sometimes, for, for those who are maybe a bit more in the know of the nature of the controversy between you know, the language of, say, the doctrine of election and, the, and then human responsibility, and what often descends into the dueling banjos debate. You know what I'm talking about when I say dueling banjos, right? Do you know the reference when I reference that song? No? That sounds perfect now, and I hope you heard it then, because I may not do it again, all right? So, you know, you got this guy doing his banjo thing, and this guy, you know, the dueling banjos, all right? You can Google that if you want. Okay, so, this is what happens in this, in this debate. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. That's what the Bible says. Oh, yeah? The Bible also says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, so it's, right? So it's back and forth, okay? It's, it's I'm going to show you my verse. You're going to show me yours. You know, I'll go to Romans chapter 8. You go to John chapter 3. You know, whatever it may be. And it's, it's like, okay, round one, and then round two. And then we come out, you know, and, and this, this is how the debate often 
descends or deteriorates, what, what does he mean when he says, whoever shall believe, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? What does he mean by whoever? He means whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But pastor, you just said, however many months ago, I'll have mercy on whoever I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I have, will have compassion. What does that mean? It means he's going to have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on, and compassion on whoever he wants to have compassion on. Our tendency is to assume that these are somehow incompatible. Methinks we make too much of ourselves. Of course they're compatible. The pastor, I don't understand how they're compatible. It doesn't matter. Of course we're not going to understand how it's all compatible. We're talking about the deep, profound things of God. But I can tell you this. God knows how to write a book, right? He knows how to write a book. He's aware of chapter 9. He's aware of chapter 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is God electing some and passing over others? Yes, I do believe that. I do. Because I think that's what the clear teaching of the text says. Do I know how God's doing that? I don't have any clue how God's doing that. I don't have any clue. I do know... That from my perspective, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if I'm communicating the gospel, it doesn't matter to me what, what this sovereign work is. I say doesn't matter. It's not my responsibility. If somebody in front of me calls on the name of the Lord in genuine faith, guess what? God didn't pass them over. <laughs> All right? I don't know what to tell you. I just, that's, that is the responsibility. Whoever calls on the name, whoever believes, those are the ones who indicate God is at work in their hearts. I just know from my perspective, I, I, I don't know what all is going on behind that other curtain. I just know there's a responsibility for me to confess after I've believed and trusted. Now, let me give you number four, and don't worry. You get worried. I get worried for you, all right? You see the time. There's a big clock, by the way, up on that screen, so I know exactly how much longer I preach than you want me to, all right? So I'm well aware... <laughs> well aware of how this happens. But there is a fourth one, and that is we are responsible to share the gospel. My, my focus, just, just for these last few minutes then, and, and again, we're going to take a break from, from Romans. We're going we're to do Christmas stuff, all right? We'll do Christmas stuff at Christmas time. But notice verses 14 and 15. Because really, this is the main theme here of the text all the way to the end, Paul's purpose then at this point is, is to answer another question. Well, has, has Israel then heard the gospel? And his answer is yes. But, th- but then he gives us this chain of how this happens. And I think then this leaves us with, with what to me uh, is an important responsibility, and that is our responsibility to then share this gospel. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And then, then he adds, verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So notice how he strings together what, what are, again, one of Paul's favorite techniques, rhetorical questions. 
And he's really making a point through asking the question. And if we take it backwards, we can see God's plan for getting the gospel to the nations. Take that list backwards. How shall they preach unless they are sent? So it begins with what? It begins with sending. God first sends those to preach the gospel. Now, some of you may go, whew, all right. Preacher man, you better get busy. There's a lot of lost people in the world, all right. So the preacher has to share the gospel. So what we don't want to do is thrust upon Romans chapter 10 our modern concept of what it means to be a preacher of said gospel. When Paul says those who are sent are sent to preach, I think he means something much more general and applicable to only this group of people. Let me tell you, here are the only group of people that are responsible to do what Paul has said here. Only those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. Those are the only ones responsible for sharing the gospel. If you've not trusted Christ as Savior, there's good, good news, bad news, right? The good news is, if you're not a believer, you don't have to share the gospel. The bad news is, you'll spend eternity separated from God. All right, so that is the bad news. So what, are, what, what is the text saying? Everybody's a, to called to preach. The word preach me, merely referring to the proclamation of the good news of Christ crucified and resurrected. So all of you, me, all of us together, we've all been sent. So God sends us to preach. And then when we preach, again, if you work backwards, they then hear. So in hearing the gospel, then they are able to believe And then in believing the gospel, they are able to call upon him. This is the chain. And the chain begins with a profound reality. That is the reality that we are expected. Get this, church. That we are expected to be a part of the means to God's end. Again, I I can't tell you that I fully understand all of how these things work out, but I can tell you God in His sovereignty has created His mission of redeeming people to Himself in Christ Jesus to work in this way, that He uses humans to communicate that message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There is then the expectation placed upon us that we share the gospel. That we share it far and wide. We share it with the nations, Jew and Gentile alike. And Paul then is going to go on to say that text we read then at the beginning. The rest of it is a way to say God has extended salvation to Gentiles. Jews are responsible for believing because they have heard the gospel. In fact, the very last verse, God is saying, in in essence, I've I've stretched out my arms. I've called Israel. I, I long for them to be saved. This, by the way, is another place where the idea of sovereignty and responsibility, we get concerned. Because on the one hand, there are verses that talk like they do in chapter 9 about God's sovereignty. On the other hand, there are verses like, it is not God's desire that any would perish, but that all would be saved. Pastor, these are incompatible. No, they're not. Why not? Because the Bible says they're not. I know, that's, I know that doesn't satisfy, Right? Yet, these are the, this is it. There's nothing incompatible about it. There's nothing incompatible about what would be God's desire that all would believe. 
And Paul is ending out this chapter by making it clear that the Jews are not, uh, do, you know, are not ignorant of the gospel. They are responsible for believing. And, and as even a testimony against them is the fact that the Gentiles, who weren't even looking for it, have believed the gospel. And Paul is saying here, this has is, this is aroused the jealousy, according to Old Testament prophecy. This has aroused the jealousy of Israel, that another nation then has enjoyed God's favor. And I think this is then referenced then to God's saving work among the Gentiles. So, so Paul is making sure everybody knows everybody is responsible to the gospel. To believe it, trust it, confess it, and then share it. I, I, I've got a quote for you that is kind of my, this is my final word on this topic. <laughs> okay, my final word for today on this topic, all right? It is, it is a quote from Tom Schreiner, who's written one of the best commentaries on Romans. He is a uh, professor at Southern Seminary, New Testament professor, uh, and, uh, and sums it up well for me. So, if we, so, and I don't know if you can see, see all that or not. I suggest that all attempts to solve the problem philosophically of reconciling sovereignty and responsibility, this is the context of the quote, are either unconvincing or inevitably suppress one side of the biblical witness. Resolution of the tension between divine sovereignty and human freedom lies beyond our present rational capacities. Now, one more phrase. Go on to the next slide. This does not mean that Paul is irrational. He does what professors are allowed to do. He makes up a word. It simply means that some truths are supra-rational. I know, I can't believe I've dropped this on you right before lunch. All right, I know, I get it. What he means by that is, some may say that just, you know, because I can't reconcile these two things, I don't understand how they work out, then, Pastor, your position must be irrational. No. Uh, Paul must be irrational. No. Just because I can't figure it out doesn't mean there's not a rational explanation. It just means it's beyond my capacity to rationalize it. It's beyond my capacity. And just to let you know then where I am with that, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I'm okay with it. So I've got, I got one, one other thing to, to, to say here. So here, here's what I think our response then should be to this. We trust His character. We obey His mission, and we submit to His Word. I, I think this is then the final response to what are some very difficult chapters, 9 and 10, no doubt about it. They're challenging words to us. Ooh, they have made us think more than maybe we want to think. In fact, some of you even said, Pastor, you, you introduced questions to me I didn't even know I should be asking, and I think you said it to me negatively. All right, I mean, I think what you meant was, oh, this whole Bible thing was hard enough until you started talking about this stuff, all right? Have you ever stopped to consider this? That maybe God in His Word reveals more to us about Himself than we can possibly handle so that we are then forced to submit ourselves to Him? Have you ever considered that what He gives us in His Word is intentionally designed, intentionally designed to go just one step or more 
beyond our rational capacity. So that I, when I run up against what I have called the whole time the wall of revelation, that my only response then to running into this wall is to not try and figure my way around it or over it or under it or through it, but to drop to my knees in submission to a good and glorious God. Say, God, I don't know how or why you've done all this saving stuff. But God, I thank you that you have saved me. I thank you that you have redeemed me. And I thank you that you are still in the work of redeeming people. So let me ask you, church, then how will you respond to his word to the unbeliever who may be here? I will tell you, my appeal, I implore you, call in the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. Believe He died on the cross and rose from the dead. Confess to God you are unable to save yourself and that Christ and Christ alone can save you. You can be saved. You can be saved. That is the promise of chapter 10. Trust in the gospel. And if you've not done that, I'll be down front. If you want to talk more about it, be glad to do that. I'll be available after the service if you want to talk more about it. But then to the believer, let me ask you, Has this been something that you've wrestled with, this entire concept? Do you need to submit yourself to it? Just say, God, I can't say I won't ever ask questions about it again, but I understand what your word says. And I understand that part of the purpose of the word is to make me dependent. It's to make me humble. Do I submit then to your word? Is your word sufficient for me? Or do I need to go beyond that wall to figure stuff out? Maybe part of the response is to say, God, your word is enough. It's sufficient. Maybe even this last point. Let me ask you, church, are you sharing the gospel? Because again, from the human side of responsibility, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear? How will they know unless those who are sent preach it? Again, the only people who've got to preach this gospel are those who've been saved by this gospel. Are we doing that? Would you commit yourself then to God's plan, which means you are a means to his end? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, then we will sing, sing of our Redeemer, the goodness of God to us in Christ Jesus. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us. We do thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that on the one hand, we can trust you in your sovereignty. We thank you that you indeed have entrusted us with responsibility. We accept it by faith. And so, God, we pray that you, by your word and through the work of your spirit, would continue that, that work of shaping and forming us and to the instruments you would design us to be, that we might be faithful to the task you've given to us. I pray, God, that you would be glorified through the work you do in us by your word today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.